Robinson, whose uh, mother is Sybil Miller. I was very fond of Jeanette Converse, who lived out in Pekin. Me and Carol Anderson, whose mother was Marion Anderson, Stanley Fitch's sister. June Morse, Sybil Morse. And she ran the post office. And Ella Morse was a good friend of mine. And they lived above the store on the opposite hill from where we lived. There was a big family of Personses. Oh, and Mandy and Lori, who had horses. And Anne had a donkey named Jigger. Louise Andrews' cat summered down here in the, the big white house. Once in a while, they'd have some kind of a concert or something in the big ballroom upstairs. And yeah, my folks would go to that. It was up in the upstairs ballroom. I don't know if they even sell ivory flakes anymore. The soap, that it comes all flaked. And Grandma would buy a box or two of that, and then we'd sprinkle it on the floor, and then we kids would, would skate on it in our sock feet so that we would kind of um, wax the floor. Everybody would be up there, but as children, we could wander around outside. So I remember being on the steps of the museum, the granite step in front of the door. It would be all lit up, and all the adults would be up there. And the music would be coming out the windows because it was summer. It was August, maybe, and it was hot. And so the music would be floating out. And I remember the light coming out the front door across the granite step, and then it would be dark on the lawn. And as a child, I can wander around in the dark, and the thread of the light is always there. I have wonderful memories of sitting on those stairs and listening to the music. I didn't. I was young enough that I didn't want to sit upstairs in the ballroom on those hard chairs. But, um, but I would kind of, you know, curl up on the stairs, those little narrow stairs, um, and listen to the music coming down the down the stairs and. The door would be open, and you'd have this sort of feeling of summer outside. And We'd be running around on the lawn, and there was this sense of being on a very long leash, or not even a leash, because that implies that we were held back, but this very long connection from them, this sort of solidity of the mass of them, of the adults, inside the Kent Museum, listening to music, it was just running. It was running in the dark. And there, there is something incredibly pleasing about being in the dark in the summertime because it's never really dark. Who was my best? Well, there were only two kids in Maple Corner at the time. Sonny Lackey, whose parents ran the store, and I. So we were the only kids in the village. And uh, we practically lived at the farm across the road from me where Aunt Mame and Uncle Jewel, uh, who had no children, and whenever we smelled donuts in the air, we headed for Aunt Mame's. <laughs> and she was like a grandmother to me. Or an aunt, or well, we, uh, they were always Aunt Mame and Uncle Jewel to everybody, and she tolerated us. <laughs> oh, we had a club, Tom X Ralston Straight Shooters Club. It was a series on 
radio. And so this Tom Dix was a Westerner, and, and you could send in Ralston box tops and get little trinkets. We had a little shack out in the pasture over by my friend Stanley Hatches, and uh, I had a pony, so I was probably a little higher on the higher higher up than the rest of them. Of course, the horse was so lame and old that it wasn't much good, but it added to the Western influence. <laughs> After school, I would go to Marion's house with Carol and Carol, and we would spend endless hours watching soap operas, eating toast, playing restaurant, completely on our own. You know, we were we were latchkey children, but there weren't keys. No, I trusted everybody. You know, I thought I thought every I loved everybody and I thought everybody loved me and you know, for quite a while. Well, as you get older, you realize that you don't love everybody and everybody doesn't love you. <laughs> You know, we didn't in the west part of Calais have much to do with the people in East Calais. East Calais people didn't have much to do with the people in the west side of town, except at town meeting. The only time I ever went to Maple Corner was when you graduated in eighth grade. No, you didn't know anybody over there. You had no reason to go over there, or you didn't want to go over there. But I was friends with quite a few people over there, but I just, I was always picking on them because they lived on the wrong side of town. At town meeting or something, we'd all get together and see who lived on the best side of town. Well, it wasn't always like that. You go to town meeting when we first got here, and we still knew a lot of people over Maple Corner that we would meet at town meeting, you know, that we knew real well. But they all older and they all passed away and died and their property got bought up by strangers. I was supposed to get up at five o'clock or so. I hated getting up in the morning. But when I was driving school bus, I had to get up early because I had to have the milking done before I drove the school bus. We'd get through probably about seven and come up and have breakfast. And then we'd go down and hay the cows and feed them the grain. And if it was summer, let them out to pasture. Round and round. <laughs> I found out after I had farmed for about twenty years, I didn't didn't really like it. No, uh, I ended up paying the hired man. Lane was teaching. I was driving the school bus, and weren't getting anywhere. I started working out of way from my house when I was ten years old. 
doing housework for the ladies and learning how to cook and taking care. Well, the first job I had was seven kids. Big house, I can tell you. <laughs> but hey, it didn't hurt me any. Kept me away from my stepmother. That's all I cared about. You know, my grandmother and I lived here by ourselves, you know. Split wood and lug wood, clean stovepipes. All that good stuff. And she worked in the mill. It used to be a furniture factory here where the park is. And all my family worked there in the mill. And everybody around here worked in the mill. Even the farmers around here worked in the mill. They'd do their chores and then they'd come and work in the mill, you know, till 3 o'clock and then go home and do their chores. It burned in 51. There was a day to go to school and I was in the L part of the house. I had a bedroom out in there and I was... And the whistle blew over at the mill. They had a whistle. I went, oh, my God, it's dark out. I thought I was late getting up, but it's dark out. And I ran to the window, and I couldn't see anything. And then it blew again. And, boy, when it blew that time, it was somebody was laying on it. And I opened up the window and looked, and there was flames going 200 feet right up in the air. And the sound was unbelievable get dressed and run over there as fast as you can and everybody was moving people out of that block across from the store and it was really scary we thought the whole village was going to burn but it didn't and then it you know just people moved away and play a game that we called Ditch It, which would be in the dark. I remember one of the Morse kids was on his bike, but the rest of us were usually walking. And we'd wander around Maple Corner. And again, you know, the adults were in their houses. They weren't outside with us, and they weren't worried about us in any way, uh, because we had this long stretch of time after dinner into the twilight, into this dark brown light, and... Um, so Ditch It consisted of us as a group of kids wandering around the village by the store, by the community center, up towards Curtis Pond. So a car would come, not very often, but you'd see the car lights in the distance coming out of the dark, and somebody would yell, Ditch It, and we'd all run to the ditches and hide so the cars wouldn't see us. <laughs> I remember... We would, my brother and I would have to go climb a ladder up to the hayloft and throw the hay down while my dad was milking cows. And uh, WDEV had a program on that night after it got dark called The Shadow. <laughs> it was a scary thing. And, and this, uh, Rushing up this guy would so be the shadow. And a very deep voice and a scary voice they'd have scary stories but I had a lot of fears about things under the bed we were so afraid to go up that ladder in the ditch being out the dark outside that's one of the things I remember and I had to sleep with the light on
I believed in God because my folks said there was one. And, uh, yeah, I believed in God for quite a while until I, I never... I believe in God till till um, high school or well he used to get on the bus when we had outside town basketball games he used to hop on the bus all he had to do was pay 50 cents and he'd always sit with me, and he'd always bring up questions about my background, my family, and trying to find out what I was like and what he was like, and he'd tell me what how his family went and all the things they went through after his dad died. And, and we got pretty, pretty close and pretty friendly. So, you know, I was about ready to graduate from high school, and we were going steady. And and so he joined the Air Force January 31st, 1951. Well, in April, I got a letter from him. And wanted to, he proposed to me in a letter. <laughs> and I thought, Lord sakes, haven't even graduated yet from high school. That's when we got engaged. And I graduated from high school in... The 10th of June, we were married the 26th of June. I was only 18 years old. That was one of the highlights of summer when the road stopped being gravelly and dusty and was really hard packed. And you could feel the coolness of the dirt road on your feet and the smoothness of it. And occasionally, they, you know, there'd be a, a rock sticking up that you might stub your toe on. But uh, that long walk from Maple Corner, which goes, as you start to approach the swamp between Maple Corner and Kent's Corner, there's a hill that goes down. And then you're in the middle of the swamp, which has a stream with, um, you know, a little bridge and the stream runs under it. And there's time to stop there at the stream and throw pebbles into the brook and, you know, continuing to go down to, to Kent's Corner. You know, I looked at things. I thought, I, I'm not sure what I thought about. I think it was sort of a quiet place where I didn't really need to think. And I would just walk. And coming back and walking these roads again, what is, it's, it's always, it's sort of heart-stopping in some ways when I realize that I'm just walking on the same dirt road. And something when I'm walking that hill and on the dirt and those trees are arching over me that I I could be, it could be, you know, 50, 60 years. That, that time could just disappear. We're kind of related to everybody that was there in those days. Not now. No. A lot of the people have come from another place and, uh, you go to the cemeteries, everybody is related to everybody. I mow the cemeteries in this town. I go round and round and round and round and round mowing, and I look at the names, and I can connect every family in town with every other family in town. <laughs> I talk to those people. 
but they don't talk back. Yeah, Louise Andrew Kent, she was a writer, she lived in the big White House. Yeah, I never really knew her too well. I, I remember seeing her and that was about it. She was a writer and she had apple trees and I think she might have given us some cookies or something when I was a kid, and, but I, I don't remember a whole lot about her. The Kents first came in uh, 1792 and they settled that area. But then they married people who were professors at Harvard and uh, places like that. I remember uh, we were up on the hill in Calais and my folks didn't have a great lot of anything. Uh, but Louise Andrews Kent and her husband Ira Rich Kent came up one day to say hi. And you know, they, they were people who let everyone know who they were and what they had, but they also did some good things for the community. Well, it was a change because all these little houses that didn't have a lot of land, but they passed on or retired or something, and all those houses were available because during the Depression, nobody here had money to buy them. So these people come up, and quite a few of them were friends of the Kents. So they'd come up and buy these about-to-be-abandoned houses and fix them up, and that was the way they transferred the houses from locals to summer people. And they were very well accepted. They fitted in, you know, I mean, a few people who felt pushed out. I think they felt overwhelmed, you know, because... These people were so well-educated, but most of us, they joined in, and we just joined in with them. There was always a difference between the, the summer people and the people who lived here year-round. And if you're here year-round, you deal with the winter and the mud season and all of that. If you're a summer person, you don't. Um, but she was, she was very... Um, gracious with people and she was a wonderful storyteller and I think people felt welcomed by her that's my sense um, the other side of it is that I don't think I ever saw her leave the house when she wasn't dressed um, and I mean dressed she would wear a suit to the Grand Union in Montpelier and you know a set of some jewelry and a fancy pin and I don't think she wore a suit when she went to the Maple Corner store, but she would be dressed. <laughs> My grandmother taught Cedric how to play chess, and he used to play chess with her. So even though uh, Grandma was formal and she was a summer person, I, I don't feel like there were... Uh, I'm sure there were people who felt like she was snobbish and, and distant and unavailable, but... That's not the sense I have about how people talk about her like Stanley or Cedric. But So Cedric learned chess from her, and I remember this was a, f a few years ago when he was here, and we were talking about something about Grandma and my mother, and Cedric made it very clear to me that I was not the lady that my grandmother was. <laughs>
she was, it, it was always an event. Everything with her was an event. You know, it, it would always be the, the, um, the, the best time that you ever had made brownies, um, and they would be the best brownies, and, um, and, and then there would be a story that would come out of, of doing that together. And so she had a way of, of maybe blessing things that, that, was, um, that meant a lot to me. I remember one time she made a mirror out of a toothpaste tube. Uh, I remember her using colored pencils to make wallpaper on, you know, on paper. A and little tiny pack of playing cards spread on a side a table. A violin laid across a, a couch made or something. A piece of wool and colored in with colored pencils. I mean, everything was so... Small and wonderful. You know, it's that same kind of feeling of being in a little world. There was another little world in these these rooms that I had seen 